Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. David Mitchell and Robert Webb met in 1993. They were college students at Cambridge in the UK. They were doing theater, and when they worked together, they realized it really clicked. So they took to the stage as a double act, Mitchell and Webb. Stage shows turned into TV writing gigs. TV writing gigs turned into their own sketch TV shows. The Mitchell and Webb situation, the Mitchell and Webb sound, the Mitchell and Webb look. Then in 2003, they starred on a British sitcom called Peep Show, which helped make them international names. Peep Show is sort of like the odd couple. There are two roommates, one sloppy, the other uptight. But instead of being shot like a movie or set on a stage in front of a live audience, the camera in the show is mounted on each character's head. Literally. Every shot is a point-of-view shot. You see what they see. And when you are looking through their eyes, you can also hear their thoughts. Also, unlike The Odd Couple, Peep Show is deeply, deeply dark. There are very few good people, and no character really grows or changes in the show's nine-season run. You can credit that in part to the writing of Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong. Jesse went on to create the HBO show Succession. Anyway, Peep Show's final episode aired about six years ago. Mitchell and Webb sort of went their separate ways for a while. Then, recently, they reunited with the sitcom Back. It just started its second season on IFC. Now, in a moment, you'll hear a clip from Back, but first I do want to mention that while this interview is mostly fun joking about fun jokey stuff, it actually concludes much more seriously. I asked Robert Webb about some controversial tweets he posted in 2018 and later deleted. Those tweets were critical of a charity which provides care and support for transgender and gender nonconforming kids. That portion of our conversation has a very different tone and is obviously about some very sensitive issues. We want to make sure that you're not caught off guard. Also, worth mentioning that David Mitchell and Robert Webb were recording their ends of our conversation locally but they declined to provide us with those audio recordings. We were recording a backup with our video conferencing software, but that backup started about a minute into the conversation, so uh, you will get a little bit of extra intro. Okay, all that having been said, let's turn back to Back, the Mitchell and Webb sitcom. The show follows foster brothers Stephen and Andrew and their long struggle for control over the family pub. In this scene, Stephen, played by Mitchell, has just returned home from his time at a wellness center. He runs into his foster brother, Andrew, played by Webb, at the family pub. Stephen becomes irate when he discovers that Andrew paid for his treatment. You paid for me to stay at Lynham Abbey, not Mum. I had the means and Ellen felt... Great. Terrific. I thought it was Miss Havisham, but it was you. Big magwitch. Magwitch actually helps Pip to fulfil his dreams. I know my dickens, Andrew. Don't you dare try to out-dickens me. Or it will be the worst of times. That's dickens. I'm being clever. I genuinely just wanted to help you. By gaslighting me into thinking I'm ill, then paying to put me in a facility so you can gaslight everyone else into thinking I'm ill. Stephen, I admit it. In the past, I've dissembled and played with the truth, but I've changed, truly. All I want to do now is help people yourself. You can't get into my head anymore, Andrew. I don't want to get into your head. Oh, yes, you do, but you can't, because I've changed the locks. I still know you. I see you. I'm looking at you right now. I know you are. Exactly. I'm staring directly at you. I'm aware of that. For my first question, I asked David if he's exhausted by playing, as he once said, unsympathetic, intelligent losers. His answer was an unequivocal no. He said he has no sympathy for actors who don't like to be typecast. Just take the type out of it. It means you don't like to be cast. Take what's going. Take the opportunity to show off for money that fate is giving you 
Um, and also, I don't like challenges. I, I like to feel like I know what I'm doing. I know what faces I'm pulling. Um, this is this is the way of milking a little bit of sort of um, wry amusement out of this miserable scenario. I feel like for a lot of actors, David, there's a moment when they go to maybe their fourth or fifth audition. Um, and, you know, for, for like screen work, I think this stage probably a little different, but, but for screen work and you like look around the room and you see the same three or four other people that you see from other auditions and you're like, oh, this is the kind of guy I am. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you the kind of guy I am. I'm someone who never gets a job from an audition. What I do is I get to know uh, talented writers and my relentless nasal moaning gets into their heads <laughs> and they end up typing it and then they with me in mind and the thing about me as an actor is I'm more like me than anyone else on earth I, I think so far if, if someone crops you up, are a leading a leading world expert at being you actually exactly so if that's what they want I will get the part e- even on a bad day Robert, your character is an almost or maybe, I guess we'll call it a maybe sociopath. Um, mm. Maybe a probably I don't sociopath. Think yeah, I don't know what that says about me either, that I, I just slipped seamlessly into that. I mean, he's, sometimes I think he's, we haven't really, I think we found it, we thought it was quite important not to decide whether he was uh, just this very harmfully needy person who went round you know, needing everyone's approval and, and caused a lot of trouble because of that, or whether he's just insane or the devil. Uh, and I certainly haven't decided. I mean, in the first series, sometimes we would do two takes where the uh, I, I would do something, you know, kind of reasonable. And you think, okay, maybe he's just this guy. He just wants people to love him. And, and then I do another one that was more pushing down on the gas of being a maniac, uh, which of course is a lot more fun. Here in the United States, double acts are somewhere between just barely a thing and not a thing. And in the UK, <laughs> there is a very long tradition, um, you know, not just on screen where, where you guys have done most of your work, but on stage. You know, you can go to, uh, uh, go to a comedy club or a comedy show and, you know, one of the five acts or one of the six acts might be a, a double act, which, you know, hasn't been in the case in the States since the 50s and 60s. When you were young people, did you like double acts? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think we both liked, uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Morecambe and Wise, who were a sort of, uh, uh, they were this terrific, quite traditional um, sort of end of the peer sort of variety uh, double act. And they were on TV in the the 70s and 80s when we were growing up. And then the slightly more modern, there was um, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. Uh, and we watched their, I think we both watched their, we, we, weren't, we didn't grow up in the same house, but we've pieced this together, uh, you know, retrospectively, we understood, we've found out what we were doing when we were little. Uh, yeah, I think we both loved Fry and Laurie. So yes, there were, there were people around uh, that we both liked, but I don't think either of us had the intention of, you know, being in a double act. It wasn't like I'm, I want to find my, comedy husband out there i think if we'd met two other people that we thought were funny and made each other laugh and wanted to write and perform with we'd have been in a a triple act um, or group or or troop but um as it was it was uh it was just um david and me that seemed like the most um efficient comedy unit <laughs> there were so many double acts on british tv it was there was Morgan wise and fry and laurie of different eras but also the there were the two ronnies smith and jones it was absolutely the standard unit particularly of sketch comedy on british tv obviously there's the monty python group and that's a bit but that was very much the exception in general there were these double acts and and so i think yeah without thinking about it, it was it, it we just thought well that's an obvious thing to have a go at and it's and you know it if you're thinking in terms of sketches on TV, which was the form of comedy that certainly I think we both thought of first as a thing to have a go at, you, you, you need two people talking to each other. Um, and so I think if you're not thinking, a lot of people go into comedy because they imagine being stand-ups and going up to a microphone and trying to make an audience laugh. But 
for us more obvious was okay it's suppose it's a scene it's a shop or something and so you need two people talking to each other was that always your act i mean before you were working on screen when you were whatever it was doing shows on the stage in the dining hall uh in university uh were you doing scenes on stage or were you doing one guy's the smart guy one guy's the dumb guy by the way, yeah, I we, love we, one guy's the smart guy, one guy's the dumb guy. I, I sound, <laughs> that sounded snide. That's like one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, by the time we, uh, we got a sketch show on, on TV, we had already um, played Mark and Jez in Peep Show. And we had a sort of uh, running behind the scenes kind of thing where we would sort of play versions of ourselves. And we kind of slipped into Mark and Jeremy there. That, that seemed like the most obvious way to write those things where I was the dumb guy. And that was, that was very enjoyable. And David was the uptight guy. Um, and the, yeah, I'm not, see, see how I even now won't allow David to be the smart guy. David was the <laughs> uptight guy and I was, I was the less uptight guy. To be guy. fair, he's also um, the snooty guy. <laughs> to give him his due but when we started we would write um whole shows we would like put on hour-long uh two-man shows where we would uh, have this wild plot involving supervillains and spies and uh, red boys and all kinds of stuff and we would play all the characters so we would always be on stage playing a, a pair of characters and then there would be lots of quick changes as one one person went off and changed and, and there would there would be jokes about the fact that there aren't enough actors to play all these characters. Um, and we were doing that when we, yeah, we did that at, at university and, and in rooms above pubs, um, you know, after we left as well. I feel like rooms above pubs is a really having a, a few times done sketch comedy in clubby environments rather than theatery environments. It is real tough to put over <laughs> in that room because a standup can always address the crowd, you know, like when there's another thing going on, like people are getting drinks or whatever, if you need to get focus back to the stage, you can always do it by directly engaging the audience. But when you're doing characters, you're doing sketches, it's a lot harder to do that. You just have to kind of power through. Yes, I think there's a, a definitely a problem. If the audience can see each other as clearly as they can see you, they will start to wonder whether the conversation you're having on the tiny stage that's a foot high than everywhere else isn't necessarily more significant than a conversation they might be having with each other. And and yes, you totally destroy this supposed, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're having a pizza in hell or whatever brilliant idea it is, is, is ruined if you have to turn to the people and go, can you shut up, please? <laughs> no, I'm not a... The funny thing is that when you, uh, if you're doing a like a, a scene, like a play type, fourth wall type thing, if you break out of that because you have to, you have to address the audience, they find that disproportionately impressive than if you were a stand-up just working on his... On, on their wits all the time. It's like if you're sticking to the script and then you then you break out for a second, they go, "Oh my god, they are alive! They aren't. They're not just acting robots." Uh, and they they're really impressed. So it's it's a superpower to be used very um, uh, sparingly. One of the challenges I remember most vividly uh, from doing sketch in a stand up club was you like get on stage and when you're sound checking, you realize you have to figure out whether you're going to walk around holding the microphones or just have the mics in stands oh, and just make it so that the scene in the scene, your character doesn't move very far from the microphones. <laughs> like which one is worse for the suspension of disbelief? <laughs> acting, acting with handheld microphones. I think I had erased that from my memory, but I, yes, that definitely happened at least twice. <laughs> that, was, that was really bad. You learn real quick that the wireless lavalier microphone is not a technology to be relied upon. Um, <laughs> like you can bring them if you want, but it's not gonna. It's a, the sound guy's just gonna look at you and go like, "Well, we got mics on stage." <laughs> <laughs> Um, what what did each of you notice about the other when you were, you know, in your late teens or 20 years old or or whatever, when you met that made you think like, oh, I want to I kind of want to stick with this guy? Well, I, th I think we thought that each other was funny. I think that was the I think we were doing that was the we, clincher. Yeah, we met 
auditioning for a show at university, a pantomime, a sort of comedy version of Cinderella we were auditioning for. And in the audition, we both got into the show, but in the auditions, we we thought, I thought Rob was, you know, really funny. And, and I didn't expect him to be as funny as he was because he looked quite cool. He had a, a long hair and an earring, which I took to be cool. And, and I thought, oh, goodness me, and yet funny, cool and funny. Um, I blew his mind. I know. And, and I still, you know, I, I'm cool and funny is not something I've managed, uh, you know, some would say either of. But um, so I, 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 and, and we were in this exciting student theatre environment and looking to do comedy and believe that we could do it as a job. And so I, 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 I think we sort of spotted each other and thought, well, let's try and write some words just for the two of us to say to each other. I mean, in, in, a, yeah, in, a, we were, in a show, not in a romantic sense. That sounds like scripting a date. Not like a Cyrano de Bergerac situation. No, no. <laughs> not yet. Um, <laughs> no, we wrote, uh, the first sketch we wrote was not very good, um, but we had a hell of a good time doing it. We were really making each other laugh, even if no theoretical audience was ever going to laugh at that particular sketch. And we just, uh, we just, got along like that and then and then it turned out that wasn't a, a fluke and we eventually we did write some good sketches uh and also on stage um we uh, you couldn't help noticing that there was a sort of not quite not telepathy or anything like that but there was a whatever that thing is people use the word chemistry they probably overuse it but i i always sort of knew what david was going to do or was doing without necessarily looking at him and and it wasn't the, it wasn't always the predictable thing in fact i'm not saying i, I always knew what david was going to do it'd be that usual thing that he <laughs> does um but um there was a sort of uh some sort of complicity going on and that was um yeah we i, I sort of um uh, thought that was probably valuable and rare and a good thing do you remember what the first thing you wrote together was Oh, yes, yes, it was called. Yes. It was called War Farce, and it was a sort of uh, a, a sort of. Uh, the idea was that somebody had written a bad thing, which was a farce <laughs> set in the World War One trenches, and that they were trying to do us trying to make the First World War sort of funny in a kind of ooh vicar my trousers have just fallen down kind of way with songs and i think we tried to write a song as well did we yeah yes i, th- I think it was, it was basically we said let's take the the genre of the west end farce which was not a genre we knew at all and, <laughs> anything about yeah that's a trouble when you when the thing you're parodying is something you're almost entirely ignorant of that's a bad starting point because we might have I mean realized, you had both served in the first world war oh yeah we absolutely we when it came to the you know the reality of the trenches we were I mean, we were, let's say, considerably better informed than we were about um, the, the tradition of farceurs in the, in the West End. But I think the key problem is, is revealed by the fact that we put a song in, because anyone who's seen even one of the famous Whitehall farces of the 1970s would have told us that they don't have songs. <laughs> it's just, it'd be like saying, oh, here's our parody of a Western. Look how everyone's on bicycles. Yeah. There's also the fact that neither of us could play an instrument. Neither of us at the time thought that we were particularly strong singers. And I don't know what on earth, and we had no musical talent. I don't know what on earth we thought we were doing. But anyway, we had, we had a good time going, it's all in a day's war. That's what the war's for, or whatever it was. Did you yeah. like record the melody into a tape recorder? How did you, what was the composition process of a song for two non-singer, non-instrument players? We didn't, yeah, try, we've never done it think, before or since. <laughs> I don't think there was a tune. I think the idea we thought someone would provide a tune, you know, further down the line. So it was sort of yeah. like just a, some rhyming couplets uh, where right. we rhymed the word war and the word for um, brilliantly. I'm sure you'll agree. That's the and, only memorable uh, bit. Yeah. That's as good as it got. Was there something that went really well for the two of you that made you think, oh, wow, like this could be a real thing? Yes, I think. Uh, well, we did after a few, um, I suppose, a few weeks after we'd first written a couple of sketches together, um, we decided to write a, a show to put on at university, and um, which we did. And this was the first of our pairs of characters, crazy adventure thing. And uh, we we wrote it was this. called um, 
It was called yes. Innocent Millions Dead or Dying, a wry look at the post-apocalyptic age brackets with songs, which just goes to show we we carried on, we <laughs> persevered with this songwriting thing. And that, that show had at least two songs. Yeah. And David couldn't remember the words to one of them for the first three performances. <laughs> and the thing is, we, we wrote the show, but we didn't rehearse it. And it was so we on the first night, we were really frightened um, because we'd sold quite a few tickets. And so uh, we thought we, our dream of using the first night as a sort of rehearsal uh, was uh, collapsing. And uh, so we did we did we couldn't really remember much of the script we'd written. Uh, and uh, but nevertheless, it went very well uh, in front of uh, admittedly in front of. Um, probably largely drunken students, but they really laughed and it was great fun. And it was a, so we did sort of think, oh, we're onto something here. In fact, I remember worrying that it wouldn't go so well when we did learn the script. Um, but we, we, we learned the script and it also went down well. But it was a bad lesson in a way because it was a sign that you can get away with it with zero preparation, which you don't, you can't often. Um, but but it was also a sign that, that there was something, there was, you know, the, the chemistry thing that the, that cliched. Did, was sort of evident to us. We'll finish up with David Mitchell and Robert Webb after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Whether you're looking to discover a new series to binge, find your next great read, or check out that movie everyone's talking about, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is your guide to all things entertainment. Every weekday, we keep pop culture in high spirits. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Bria, what's your reader wheelhouse? A woman on a journey, space, post-apocalyptic roads, and magical food. Mallory, what's your reader wheelhouse? Werewolves, haunted houses, weird fiction, and uh, books set in Florida for, for some reason. We're reading glasses, and we want to know what your reader wheelhouse is. We can use it to help you find more books that you love. And avoid books that you don't. So whatever you like to read about and however you like to read it, we want to help you read better. Reading glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are David Mitchell and Robert Webb. For almost 30 years now, the two have performed as the comedy duo Mitchell and Webb. They've starred in shows like The Mitchell and Webb Look, Peep Show, and Back, which is just entering its second season on IFC. Well, uh, let's play a little bit of Peep Show, which was the wonderful and so funny television show in which the two of you starred for... um, uh, something like f- 10, 12 years, nine seasons over a, quite a number of years. Um, you are a duo of roommates on the show. And Mark, who was played by David Mitchell, is a socially awkward loan manager with a cynical outlook on life. Um, another intelligent um, but unlikable <laughs> uh, schlub. Yeah. And Jeremy, who's played by uh, my guest Robert Webb, is is a slacker and a musician without talent. Um, and and we, the show also starred Olivia Coleman and, and was co-written and created by Jesse Armstrong. So in this clip, Jeremy's band just got their first paid gig ever, and he is celebrating at a restaurant with Mark. Uh, sorry, excuse me. I ordered uh, three pilau rice and three peshwari naans. It's, it's all right, Jeremy. It's all right. I changed the order. There's always rice left. It's not all right. Bring us three pilau rice and four peshwari naans, please. I've shared enough rice with you, Mark. I'm in the big league now. Four naan, Jeremy. Four. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, one of the things about this show is that uh, the characters are abrasive at best and i have a friend who's who really loves the show as do i and is a writer for a very successful network television sitcom here in the united states and a good one too and um he asked me to ask you uh something along the lines of my entire life is having executives write notes to me that say could we make the characters more likable 
Um, <laughs> and or could they be nicer or could they be warmer? The group of you writing these shows and working on these characters really leaned in to making them unpleasant. <laughs> Over a really long period of time, uh, was there ever a point when you thought this moderately successful sitcom could be a really successful sitcom if we just if we just had somebody save a cat from a tree? Um, <laughs> if I may say it, dreaming of something moderately successful becoming something very successful is very new world. That's not, <laughs> not what we do in Europe. If it's moderately successful, you go, well, that, I'll take that. I thought it would be a disaster. We oh, thought everyone moder- would die. Yeah. <laughs> moderately successful. Brilliant. Don't mess with moderately successful. It goes to crap. Um, so I think that's the first thing. But there is less pressure. I would say that there is a tradition of nastiness in British well, every part of British life, we're a, we're a horrible, horrible country. But um, but uh, uh, there's a tradition of nastiness in British comedy. It is th- there's a deep suspicion of attempts to make characters more likable, and probably too too great an extent. I think we underrate the the comic and dramatic power of characters being lovable, um, and because we love watching American shows where that happens. You know, I love Homer Simpson. Um, even though you know he doesn't exist, and I, I definitely am fonder of that show than if he was just sort of re- relentlessly dysfunctional in a in a way that wasn't likable. Um, but but I th- <laughs> but I think we sort of feel the authenticity. If it's comedically authentic, it must be really bitterly nasty. Is our sort of knee jerk thing. So it's harder for the execs over here to say make it more l- likable because they know that that that's going against comic orthodoxy or the or British comic orthodoxy. So I think there's less pressure on that. And we've got a lot of shows here, you know, like the classic Faulty Towers, which is, you know, a brilliant uh, six hours of comedy uh, set in a hotel and very much have got a mainstream audience. And, you know, uh, the central character of that is deeply, deeply unpleasant and unlikable. And yet people sort of warm to him and sort of root for him in a weird way. So there's a bit of that a bit of precedent for those characters working in shows that, that, uh, that, that get mainstream appeal. Um, and in terms of um, success, I, I, there was also less pressure from that point of view as well, because it, it, the reviews were always good. The audiences weren't massive, but they were they were very <laughs> loyal. They, they were always there. Uh, and, you know, it was a late night show on Channel 4, which is not one of the sort of it's not a, it's one of the main channels, but it's not enormous. And it, we were sort of allowed to kind of plod along in that in that way. And and we knew that as the, that the scripts were very funny. So as long as the scripts carried on being really funny and the show was really funny, we didn't really, we weren't given that much cause to worry about a, a, a massive audience. We, we were sort of allowed to, uh, <laughs> in a very, maybe it's quite British. I just said plod along in our usual, we were allowed <laughs> yeah. to plod along and that's what, that's what we wanted to do. <laughs> so part of the conceit of the show is that it is a, essentially a, a first person uh, show it is from the the like literal camera point of view of the characters, but it mm. also has um, voiceover narration from the inside of the characters. Um, you know the yeah. the thoughts are are made audible to the audience. Um, how is it different to? I mean, I'm sure that that whole thing started feeling like a trap around the eighth episode that was written, but like, how is it different to look at making comedy from the first person rather than from, you know, from the third person? Uh, Well, I I think definitely in terms of the the sheer practicalities of shooting something entirely in POV shots, that there was not a day where we didn't think, well, well, we know why that isn't how things are normally made. And I think we know that in a deep way that perhaps no one else in the world knows because uh, it's just so impractical and difficult and the lighting and it, you know, ah, oh, takes forever. Uh, so I, I think we, we did a lot think, why can't we just shoot this scene normally? And it's just, you know, and, and then you get to interact with the person you're acting with rather than sort of, you know, guess how they're going to play it. 
But on and I mean, part of you when you say that the, everything was shot in point of view, not only was that literally the case, but I, I think for for a fair amount of the material, it was it was cameras like physically attached to like literally from the point of view, like cameras on hats and shoulders. Yeah. Like I, I know that at some point it developed into, well, we uh, once in a while we can shoot over somebody's shoulder and say, that's the <laughs> point of view. But like there were like cameras on hats. There were cameras on hats. Yeah. For the yeah. first series. Yeah. There was a, there was a little micro micro camera uh, mounted on a bicycle helmet. Uh, and so, yeah, we were doing it like that. And you did, you sort of ducked down so that the, the helmet was at the, was at eye level rather than at forehead level. And it was just bizarre. And then we realized that actually the, the, the quality that we, of the, of the video that we were getting from that was so poor that they were degrading the video when they shot it with a proper camera so that it could look equally rubbish. Uh, and then they, at that point they realized let's not have the, uh, but at one point there was a there was a driving scene where Jeremy is driving around Croydon and I was driving and I'm the one of the two of us I can well that's why Jeremy was driving Mark wasn't because Mark can't drive neither can David anyway so I was driving and uh, and also filming David with my forehead cam uh, and this wasn't on a low load or anything I was actually driving in traffic and then you would do this like thirty minute take going round and round and round. And then, or at least you go round and round and round for half an hour and get four takes or whatever. And then they'd review that because they couldn't watch live because the technology was, you know, it just wasn't there. And then they go, oh, the problem is you don't seem to be filming David properly. You're not really moving your head right over <laughs> to the side and getting, well, can we think why that might be? It might be because I'm trying to concentrate on not crashing the car. So, you know, in the early days we were doing, and it was much more, it was much more difficult than, uh, in the first few series anyway, because of cables. It wasn't until I think series five, six, seven, that that the camera didn't have to have a cable coming out of the back. So not only were they trying to hide all the lights because you, you're, you've got this POV camera swinging around, you know, 180 degrees, they, you, they also had to hide all the cables. And it was just, it was just a nightmare. We, we, we got through directors of photography. I don't think anybody came back for the first four or five series. We got through them. There was quite a high turnover because they all just had a breakdown trying to shoot that show. I mean, it's not like you guys invented dramatic irony or anything, but it does seem to me like a particular kind of humor to for the audience to be seeing the world from the character's perspective while also knowing the knowing the world from outside of the character's perspective. That's absolutely right. And the other side of the premise that I think we didn't ever tire of and was tremendously useful to the show and is one of the reasons why it's um why the episodes are so sort of sort of tightly packed with jokes and is it hearing the thoughts that is hugely comedically and dramatically useful because you can drop a scene if it wasn't really funny and just sort of fill the audience in with the uh, the thoughts of the person going into the next scene and you can add jokes and you uh, it's that you know for me that's that's the side of the of the uh, premise of it that's hugely sort of useful and and, I, and every program i make you know that, that does you sort of think oh, you can't just totally cut things in the same way you have to tell the story through action which you, you actually don't in peep show you can cut action if it's not funny and i think that contributes to it being such a rude show because people obviously are thinking things that they would never say apart from i mean apart from jeremy obviously when we would go in uh, and record those voiceovers david's uh, david would have like three pages and i would have like half a page because the difference is jeremy does say everything that he thinks and so he had comparatively few unvoiced thoughts whereas mark did actually have a filter so um so yeah he was always doing that you know i i mentioned that olivia coleman was also one of the stars of the show you've worked with her in in many things i mean she had a, a very long and fruitful comedy career um, before she became a super famous and super internationally famous actor mm. Um, did you like look at her, uh, being, uh, you know, a weirdo on a sitcom and think, you know, it's in this person's future 
international stardom. <laughs> we weren't that surprised. I'll, I'll say I'll go that far because um, from as soon as we met her, actually, she was one of the funniest people we knew, and also one of the best dramatic actors as well. Um, when she was, you know, in, in shows when, when we when we were students, so uh, it didn't come as that much of a surprise. And actually, given the provocation uh, of her winning an of a direct contemporary winning an Oscar, uh, I don't feel that much of that much bitterness or, or hate. <laughs> Actually, uh, in fact, uh, I, I'm still waiting for the internal backlash where I start writing, you know, spiteful letters to her. I, I haven't that hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm only delighted that, um, that it that it's gone so brilliantly. I'm jealous of my friend's WGA award and I'm not even a television <laughs> writer. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the, the thing I that show, uh, the pantomime of Cinderella that Rob and I met during the auditions of was also the show we met uh, Olivia Coleman on uh, this this stage show at university. And I, I, I mean, I remember it about being in a scene with Rob and Olivia and thinking, <laughs> having previously done a play at school, thinking, blimey, this university drama, is, this is really... These people are good, um, <laughs> which was an entirely false impression because I didn't realise that I was on stage with, you know, by, by someone I was going to collaborate with for decades and is a brilliant comedian and a future Oscar winner. Um, uh, you know, but because actually a lot of university drama is really terrible. But at that moment, I'm just remembering this, in this pantomime, we're just turning into pantomime of Cinderella and these guys are brilliant. So I, I yeah, I think we both thought that she... Uh, was absolutely as talented as it's possible to be from the start. I nevertheless was surprised she won an Oscar because uh, in my experience, there's no justice in the world. So the fact that she deserves one doesn't mean she'd get one, but uh, she, she does deserve one and she's got one. So that's nice. And actually, and actually winning, you know, from a performance that contains humour, which is quite, it's quite rare, isn't it? Because, uh, because anything, you know, you get this in, in movies and also I think in, in literature that if something is capable of making you laugh, it is uh, quite often despised because, <laughs> you know, we can all make each other laugh and you kind of go, well, that's not, that's not difficult. The Ted down the pub is, is funny. So no one's giving yeah, every, everyone, laugh. everyone likes a bit of silliness, but uh, yeah, no, so, uh, let's, but let's come on, break let's, out let's, the endless misery and then give each other very, some awards. Yeah. For being, who can be most <laughs> solemn. Robert, one of the reasons that, uh, the second season of Back uh, came a few years after the first um, was that um, you had a pretty major health crisis. Yeah. Um, how did you find out that you had a heart condition? Uh, at the um, the cast medical where you, <clears throat> so you turn up and the doctor, you know, it's, it's usually a very routine kind of perfunctory thing for the insurance basically. Uh, and he put his stethoscope on my heart and uh, pulled a very alarming face. Uh, and then you'd think they'd go to, uh, you know, medical school, they'd teach them, it'd be the first week would be, you know, the, how to keep a straight face when you hear something deeply alarming in some, anyway, when he didn't do that. In he, fact, the he really, he really <laughs> went for face pulling. He really went for it. It was like <laughs> a gurning competition. Yeah. Particularly if it's a heart condition, you'd think that's the last thing you want to do is to make someone jump. Yeah. It, it really did give me quite a shock, which is not what you want. Uh, anyway, it turned out I had, he said, um, uh, what have you been doing about the heart murmur? And I said, what heart murmur? Uh, and then it turned out after a few scans that I had uh, my mitral valve, which is one of the valves in your heart, had prolapsed and it wasn't doing its job. It was just flapping around uselessly. Uh, and the heart had grown and remodeled and uh, was doing all kinds of weird things to keep the show on the road. And I was given, well, a cardiologist said, you're not going to have a heart attack in the next fortnight. But uh, if we don't do something about this uh, in the next two, four or six months, this heart will fail. Uh, and I went, oh, OK, then. So I had to have uh, heart surgery. So uh, after that consultation, I went in which was the day before we were supposed to start filming. And then I went and did, I think, I don't know, eight or nine days of filming. And then I thought, actually, this is a bad idea. Uh, I should probably go home and rest before the operation. Um, and then, yeah, about a week after that, I had the operation. And then it took me 
four months to recover. And then we filmed the rest of, well, we started filming the rest of the show and then we had to stand down for COVID. So there was another few months and then finally we finished it. But that's why, you know, that first delay was because uh, I was tremendously poorly, but I'm very well now. Thank you. What what led you to not address or disregard the symptoms that must have come? Well, with, there weren't um, that many symptoms. I mean, I was feeling tired, uh, but I just kind of put that down to being 47. And also, um, I was drinking a fair bit and I still smoked like an idiot. So I was just leading a very unhealthy lifestyle. And I, I did get the odd chest pain, but it wasn't terribly dramatic. I just didn't know that that was... Um, that that was going on uh so yeah so if i was i was very grateful that they that that got spotted at the um medical i gather that you've been sober since yeah yeah i mean they're not really really i had a uh, it's a weird thing because you mentioned these two things at the same time and people quite naturally make the connection um the mitral valve failure is not uh, based on doesn't happen because of lifestyle it's a congenital thing. It's a birth defect um, that I had two cardiologists and a surgeon tell me that. And I chose to believe them. In fact, I was very relieved to hear that. Um, but at the same time, when I uh, came out of hospital, I had a you know newfound respect for my internal organs. And I, you know, I wanted to be on my own side, as it were. And, you know, I was, I'm a SWAT really at heart. And I wanted to be top patient. I wanted to impress the doctors uh, and do have a phenomenal recovery. I didn't just want an okay recovery. I wanted an amazing recovery. Uh, and um, so they're all very pleased with me. So I don't drink anymore. And I certainly don't smoke, obviously. And I do proper exercise and all that did stuff. It, did it change other parts of your life? I mean, that's a uh, that's a big change. Yes, huge change. Um, and I, because I think since school, really, and where I was feeling quite rebellious about uh, PE, physical education, and games, and I was so bad at football, and I think I came out of school with this anti-exercise kind of uh, feeling, and kind of, oh no, we're the we're the people who read books and do you do acting on stage. We don't do exercise. That's for other people. And I, it was an idiotic attitude. And I just kind of, apart from dancing, I, quite, I always liked dancing. But apart from that, I, I wasn't really, I didn't really live in my body until I started exercising uh, as I recovered from, from the operation. And now I, I go for a run uh, three or four times a week and really enjoy it. But um, So that's one of the bigger changes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the British comedy duo David Mitchell and Robert Webb. At this point, I want to give you a heads up. There's going to be a pretty abrupt tone shift in this interview. You'll hear me ask Robert Webb about some Twitter posts he wrote criticizing a British charity called Mermaids, which supports transgender, non-binary, and gender-diverse children. Mermaids has been targeted by people and groups who oppose gender-affirming medical care for trans children in the UK. Things got a little tense in the conversation. We're presenting the next segment basically as it happened, so you might hear some awkward silences. Also, if those issues are something to which you are sensitive, we thought you should know in advance. Okay, let's get back into it. I want to ask you about uh, something a little intense, uh, right up there with uh, having gone through heart treatment. So uh, a couple of years ago, Robert, you tweeted about a piece in the Times of London uh, that was very critical of an organization called Mermaids, which is an organization that does um, education and advocacy and aid around trans kids. Um, and you were pretty pointed in your retweet of that article as well. Um, and at the time, Mermaids was kind of like... Uh, uh, being targeted and ended up having a, a big government grant it received um, reconsidered. Uh, it was ultimately upheld, but um, went into like review. Um, so you, you were asked about it. So you, you, the, the tweet was deleted. Um, you were asked about it uh, relatively recently. You were asked whether you regretted the tweet by the times of London. Um, and you said, not really. On the other hand, I started to say something, then I stopped. And that means everyone can rush in to fill the blanks. He's a transphobe. He's a <laughs> Once you say, I'm not transphobic, but it's a disaster. It just seems unlucky that you can't acknowledge that there are going to be 
competing interests here and there without that becoming you're a bigot. Um, I guess, given that you said you don't re regret the tweet, um, did it, does it still like reflect how you feel about mermaids or organizations like no i mean mermaids? jenna Turner, uh, wrote this column i can't even really remember what her specific objections were but they made sense to me at the time and i retweeted it approvingly um and then it was a kind of there was this feeling that if you criticize a charity that is or the way a charity operates or its methodology that is the same thing as criticizing the client base it's like saying if the you know if i've got a problem with the way oxfam has been operating it's because i hate poor people in the third world or and it's kind of like it started to feel like if you um, if you criticize Brexit, it's because you hate Britain, or if you criticize Jeremy Corbyn, it's because you hate poor people. It was just a really weird way of looking at it, and the whole debate is uh, really overheated, uh, and it's impossible to really talk about this or say anything even remotely reasonable without what I say being used as a vehicle for another round of. Uh, defamation and abuse, really. So it's it's not a topic I tend to dive into anymore at all, really. It's kind of scary for me because um, I have two gender nonconforming kids, one of whom is transgender, um, and I know that when my oldest kid came out to me when she was in kindergarten. Um, I was really reliant on an organization called Gender Spectrum that does many of the same things that mm -hmm. roommates does. Um, and, you know, the so many people don't understand uh, the you know, what, what the best practices are for caring for trans kids. Um, and, you know, the, the kinds of criticisms, I, I think people react in an overheated way because, um, you know, the, there are a lot of trans people who weren't supported when they were yeah. kids, you know? Um, I know that, I know that you had talked about talking to them, uh, to the folks at Mermaids when all this happened. Did, did that ever end up happening? No, no, it didn't. Um, no, because I, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, it just wasn't a conversation that I wanted to carry on getting into because the reaction was so strong it was as if i'd said i hate trans children which of course i don't i mean it do i have to say okay maybe i do uh, you know that is not how i feel about the situation it was just it was a it was critical of the way that mermaids was conducting itself do you mean specifically the way i can't remember jesse really the organization yeah how do it was you kind of it was the end of um, 2018, and uh, it's not something that I really want to talk about. Um, I mean, do you feel like it's a it's appropriate to affirm kids' gender sure. identity? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's on a on a case by case basis, but I'm not really an expert. You're a parent, and you've got first hand experience. Okay, I, I I know it's I know it's a really tough thing to talk about and a a, a, th a thorny thicket to wade into, um, given how intense people's feelings are about it. So I, I appreciate you talking to me about it. Um, is there is there anything that is, has been left up uh, unsaid that you no. would like to say? Okay. Well. Robert and David, Robert, I'm I'm sorry to uh, end on such a a, a tough note, um, but I didn't I didn't want to leave it uh, I didn't want to leave it loose. Um, I enjoy and admire your work so much, uh, both of you. So thank you for all that, and uh, thanks for the great new show, and thanks for talking to me. Thanks very much. <laughs> thanks, David Mitchell and Robert Webb. Their show back is airing now 
on IFC. The American Academy of Pediatrics and all other major doctors groups in the United States recommend care for gender nonconforming kids that affirms their stated gender identity. If there's a gender nonconforming child in your life, my family has received caring and invaluable guidance from the folks at Gender Spectrum. They provide resources and training around gender and kids, not only for families, but also teachers, doctors, mental health workers, and other professionals. You can find Gender Spectrum online at genderspectrum.org. Our company, Maximum Fun, has been proud to support the work of Trans Lifeline. If you are transgender or gender nonconforming and you need emotional support or are facing a crisis, you can find them online at translifeline.org or you can call 877-565-8860. 877-565-8860. We'll have those links and more on our website, the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where this week the completely barren Charlie Brown Christmas tree-esque tree in my backyard burst to life like a caricature of spring. It's now entirely covered in green leaves, and it all happened within the course of a week. Nature is really something. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Special thanks this week to Jerry Holmes, Evan Urquhart, and Danielle Kurtzleben. Uh, Our thanks to all of them for lending us a hand. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.